0: Welcome to the next to last episode on cellular agriculture. It originally was one huge episode with 55 minutes but I decided this is way too long so I'm breaking it up into this episode and then the actual final with a bit of a review of the season and some additional resources that I would recommend you to check out. Now as you may have noticed I'm trying my best to give you a very diverse perspective both by featuring people from very different countries and also with different backgrounds. That's why I'm excited to introduce you to the perspectives of two investors from Atlantic Food Labs and Big Idea Ventures, as well as the perspective of Fabio Ziemsen, who is a thought leader in Germany and Europe. These three different interviews have a lot of insights to offer. Let's jump right in. Welcome to the Red to Green podcast on food innovations that are better for the planet and better for you. And I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. So, to start out, you will hear from Maximilian Bade, who is supporting ambitious founders at Atlantic Food Labs. Atlantic Food Labs is a leading European investor and company builder doing seed stage funding in the areas of food, health and sustainability. This includes topics like alternative protein, synthetic biology, CO2 reduction, waste solutions and more. You will hear about their criteria for investing in plant-based and cell-based companies the opportunities in personalized nutrition and we also briefly discuss the topics plant fungi and insect-based proteins max what are your decision criteria to invest in salac companies are they in any way different from investing in a plant-based company
1: i mean generally speaking I think there's two kinds of investors in in cellular agriculture at this point in time. And I think one of those kind of strategies that they employ is really more focused on a spray-and-pray approach, meaning they invest in really any company that tries to significantly influence the given industries through cellular agriculture. And the reason behind that is that there's such a high level of scientific and technology risk involved that they very openly follow this kind of spray-and-pray strategy um, because they generally believe in the potential of the market, the Mm. technology, but they are still very uncertain which kind of company will eventually win a particular category. And so for us, the strategy is a little bit different. I think we are very selective and very thesis-driven, and therefore we only invest in, for example, one player per category. I think there's a lot of differences in the approaches and criteria that we take when we try to make an investment decision between cell ag and, and plant-based companies. First of all, the fundamental difference between the two kind of companies lies in the technology and the intellectual property. Therefore, you really have to kind of dig deeper into the technology with cell ag companies and understand what is really protectable and where can we build clear IP, which for us as a VC is, as you can imagine, one of the most important criteria when we look at a possible investment because clear distinctive ip leads to a lot of value down the road and in plant-based most innovations are kind of protected by trade secrets and therefore less defensible and the second differentiator i think is the time to market the companies that really use deep tech and scientific research such as meetable they obviously spend a lot of time in the lab and therefore their product development cycle is a lot longer. And hence, uh, it will take a lot longer until the end consumer finally gets a product. Whereas plant based companies are most of the time based on a recipe, essentially. And uh, you can get to market a lot quicker, which also enables you to kind of capture user or consumer feedback a lot quicker. And that's valuable in and of itself. And so I would argue 80% of the investment decision is based on the team and the team composition and the impression that we gather from the team. Many times we see great scientists. But great scientists don't necessarily make great entrepreneurs. Another 10% in waiting would probably be allocated to the market opportunity and the rest really to their intrinsic innovation potential or the technology that they follow.
0: Max, what investments has Atlantic Food Labs made in select
1: companies and why? So we were very early backers of a company called Meatable, which is based in the Netherlands. And the special thing about them is that they use something called pluripotent stem cells um, as part of their process. Which essentially um, enables them a controlled differentiation into any kind of cell and into any cell type, which is important because you need muscle and fat cells to eventually um, kind of come up with 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 the right product and with the right structure of the product. And the original IP was actually developed at Cambridge and Stanford University. And the other company that we back is called Legendary Foods. Maybe you've heard of them because I'm very aware of the fact that you already interviewed Britta. <laughs> <laughs> um, who, by the way, really enjoyed speaking about Legendary and the process. And she's also a big fan of the podcast. And so Legendary essentially is Europe's first clean dairy company. And they produce real milk proteins like casein and, and whey proteins uh, without a cow. If we build the argument from a portfolio perspective, um, we really consider the whole alternative protein space to be part of our portfolio and to be part of our investment thesis. And then obviously cellular agriculture is just a part of that, right? Or next to plant-based and also next to to mushroom-based solutions. We've invested in one company, which is called Mushlabs, and they essentially use mycelium cells. So that's the root network of of mushrooms So anything that the eye essentially doesn't see. What we eat and consume is is just the fruiting body. But mycelium cells are essentially very nutritious and uh, Mushlabs uses them in a fermentation play to eventually develop meat alternatives.
0: Mm. It's interesting to think about how one structures the different products or offerings. Oftentimes, I've seen the market being distinguished in salag, in terms of real animal cells. Then you have the plant-based alternatives, then another, let's say, vertical with uh, insect-based proteins, and then the fungi.
1: I think I totally agree on the framework that you just laid out. Our thesis is that insects are going to have a very hard time to really be integrated into a Western diet. It's just so dislikable and and people just are really grossed out by the fact uh, that they eat insects. Although most of the insects put into real food products for human consumption, you don't even notice that you're eating an insect, right? But still, it's just the thought of it. And I think that's going to be a very, very tough thing to crack for most entrepreneurs because this is a real shift in consumer behavior that's very deeply rooted in our psychology also in order to feed our cows more sustainably for example i could totally envision insects to be a feed solution and lastly i think mushroom-based solutions in, in comparison to, to pure plant-based praise are a lot more complex because the fungi mm-hmm. as such is kind of its own category and it's still a category that is not really very well understood and researched And so I think that there's a lot of future potential to be captured in this industry. Also taking into account the positive health effects uh, that are usually associated with mushrooms and have Mm -hmm. been associated with mushrooms for thousands of years, especially in the Chinese traditions. And so I really believe that um, we are going to see a lot more companies focused on on fungi.
0: Yeah. So Isha described three stages of select companies uh, the big visionaries the b2b companies and the ecosystem builders and for those who are more interested in that topic uh, check out episode 12 of red to green what is your opinion about that and do you see a fourth tier emerging
1: yeah so i fundamentally agree with the framework that isha laid out uh, you can also see that in our portfolio so Beatable, for example, would be definitely clustered under the big visionaries. Legendary would kind of be at the intersection of visionaries in B2B. And the same is, is true for, for, for Mush Labs. Within the B2B category, you would want to further distinct that into two kinds of companies. So one of them who eventually becomes like a pure play ingredient provider, simply making ingredients on demand for food companies, for example. And those who kind of follow a platform strategy. Right? And so they have kind of an internal research pipeline mm-hmm. where they produce a product, but they also give other companies access to that platform and to that research to build new products based on their original design. And that immediately turns into network effect driven businesses, which I think are going to you know, dominate the B2B realm simply because they become very defendable and they accelerate the overall development of the category. Personally, I'm a very big fan of ecosystem companies um, that kind of enable the whole industry to become more efficient. If you look at technology historically, I think that's a typical development that we've always seen. Most of it started like with the with hardware play, and then we saw kind of a hardware applications, we saw platform applications, and we eventually saw software coming along and making everything more efficient. And I think the same is going to be true um, for these industries. Nevertheless, I think... It is very unclear where, for example, the cultured meat industry will develop because it's still such an early stage. There's no clear blueprint on how to scale production. There's no clear blueprint on what exact kind of technology will eventually prevail. And so, as a firm, we really believe that it might still be a little bit too early to invest in enabling solutions, especially since they are still of the first generation.
0: Interesting. What is on the horizon for you with regards to the food industry? Which developments do you find most exciting?
1: If we look at current practices, how we've grown plants, they were always optimized for growth. So you have to to grow it quicker, you have to grow it bigger. But plants were never really optimized for nutrient preservation and nutrient availability. If you take a closer look at the plant microbiome, so the, the phytobiome, we do understand that this is one of the key levers, for example, to increase nutrient density and availability. And I think there's going to be a lot of companies that try to not only improve the way we, you know, grow plants, but also to really help them become more nutritious and more healthy overall. And I think that's a very interesting kind of space that we that we definitely dive deeper into. And lastly, I believe that circular approaches, for example, reusing food waste are an amazing solution for our planet and we've seen a couple of companies that develop alternative materials out of food waste for example and i think generally speaking although with materials we go a little bit further away from food as such but i think alternative materials are definitely a very hot topic and a very interesting space in sustainability solutions as a whole and of course one overarching trend is changing people's habits and diets so we see nutrition as the key to the health question, preventing lifestyle diseases like diabetes, and really improving our personal health. And that's definitely going to be driven by um, the microbiome personalized nutrition solutions, but also all the kind of products that we just touched upon. And I think it's very important to be in mind that we are currently working on solutions that will fundamentally change human health.
0: Max, if you would have 50 million of your personal money and you could invest it in any businesses, where would you invest it in?
1: It's a very interesting question. Obviously, I've thought about that, uh, but the path to 50 million is not that easy. So I'm still working on that. (laughs) But if I really had that kind of money, I think I would probably consider giving Elon Musk a call and (laughs) helping him build solutions that really feed the human race on Mars. Because as you know, it's very, very hard and very expensive to bring materials into space. I recently read somewhere that it costs around $120,000 to bring a salami pizza to, to one of the to one of the space stations. And so, my my bet would really be on solutions, and that could be, you know, bioreactors and fermenters and so on um, that work in space, and that you just have to bring there once, and then they can produce protein and food essentially on the station or on another planet. I think that would be something that, uh, you know, for me, is it's obviously, <laughs> quite figuratively speaking, a moonshot. But I think that's something that I would be really interested in.
0: Mm-hmm. Why are you interested in
1: that? And pushing the boundaries of physics and making humanity an interplanetary race. It's, I mean, it's just very, very, very interesting and, and very stimulating. And to see somebody already doing it, And doing it so successfully, I think it's a great time to be alive.
0: So Max, that sounds like you have read uh, quite a bit of sci-fi.
1: If you take a long-term view and if you take a historic view, the early episodes of Star Trek, for example, just to make a very common example, the series has already predicted a bunch of technologies that we actually use now in everyday life. I think watching and learning from from sci-fi and also from the creativity that's involved in creating these stories really helps us To open our minds to to solutions and ideas that I think would not have been possible otherwise.
0: Next up, you will hear from Andrew D. Ive. He's the founder and managing general partner of Big Idea Ventures. Big Idea Ventures is a hybrid venture firm slash accelerator. Their first fund, the New Protein Fund, is raising up to $50 to invest in the best companies in the plant-based and alternative protein ecosystem. They have invested in Shiok Meats, which have been on the podcast in episode 11. We discuss how the mindset within corporates shifted with sustainability commitments towards both consumers and investors, and how that is affecting the food industry. We also touch upon the effect of COVID-19 on the development of cultivated meat, as well as a fourth-tier of select companies emerging, which you could call Delicacy Meats. Yeah, you're an investor in uh, Shiok Meats, and we are featuring them on the podcast. I would be very interested to see your perspective on why did you
2: invest? One of the biggest challenges with cell-based is making it look right. Now, if it's an ingredient that you're adding to add flavor to something, it doesn't need to look like a shrimp with its curved body and all those sorts of things. It just needs the right flavor. So these guys are probably, I would say, 18 months, maybe two years away from having a commercially viable product. You know, all of those reasons. Female founding team, the the team's amazing. There aren't that many companies focusing on seafood. Seafood is a big deal from our point of view. We're really focused on ocean uh, preservation and so on, as well as some of the other key things we're focused on. So what are the
0: key decision criteria for you to invest in a Select company? If you compare it to um, how you would make a decision, if you look at a plant-based venture, are there any criteria which are s- more specific to Select?
2: Yes and no. So the, the most important things in any investment are all the same, whether you're investing, I would guess, in a clean tech company or a biotech company or for that matter a cell-based or a plant-based. So usually it's the people involved in the business that are the first and foremost, most important aspect that you're mm-hmm. investing in. So the founding team in terms of their vision, in terms of their coachability, do they have integrity? Do they have honesty? Do you believe that they're driven? Do they, are they going to have the tenacity and the perseverance to keep going despite the challenging times? And there are always, always challenging times. I've probably made about 70 investments at this point across my kind of food investment career. And I think the things I was looking for in the beginning have changed over time. Mm -hmm. Dictuitiveness, tenacity, willing to grind it out are becoming more and more important as I've seen companies which Mm -hmm. have great opportunities sort of quit because it it just becomes too difficult for them. So those are some of the important characteristics. In terms of cell-based itself, you know, we're looking for a strong uh, a strong team from a science perspective, people who really understand where they're going and why. Um, we're looking for innovation. So I know that sounds kind of weird when you talk about cell-based because de facto cell-based is innovative. But the reality is mm-hmm. there are teams out there who are just sort of trying to follow the footsteps of Memphis Meat and other companies. They're just sort of three years or four years or five years later than uh, those companies, but they're doing pretty much the same thing. We've got companies in our portfolio, for example, that are, that are focusing on the technology around the shovels and picks of the industry. So for example, we've got a company developing a uh, plant-based growth factor as opposed to fetal bovine serum. That plant-based growth factor, if they prove it out, is actually significantly less to manufacture than fetal bovine serum. So that could be a way of bringing the whole industry closer to commercial viability. We've got companies that are focusing in on the the fat aspects of cell-based because it's fat that often makes these things taste good. So, for example, if you could create cell-based fat in large quantities and you could even add that, for example, to plant-based, you could end up with a a product that tastes like real meat but actually just is a plant-based plus cell-based hybrid. So there's all kinds of interesting things coming through. So we're looking for, you know, great team innovation. And those would be the key criteria.
0: For listeners who are interested in cultured fat, we had a piece of meat on in episode 10, describing how they're creating cultured fat for improving the taste of plant-based products. Very interesting
2: and Piece of Meat is a company we've invested in also.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. True. I remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's what you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, this, the space is not that huge <laughs> at the same time. It's um, not.
2: And yet there's a lot of innovation coming through. So it's, it's really quite exciting. And the funny thing about COVID is as the supply chain broke down, it sort of reinforced the point that even plant-based uh, and its efficiency doesn't work if you go, if you don't get the inputs. So mm-hmm. cell-based is one of the few categories in the protein space which allows m- much more food security for countries um, if there's a breakdown of the supply chain.
0: Yeah, so you say that COVID is affecting the development positively.
2: I, I firmly agree with that. I mean, for example, we have a really good relationship with the Singaporean government and the whole ecosystem uh, of innovation around the food space in Singapore. And I think there's been a, a kind of a, a strong recognition that that cell base will help food security. I also am hearing things from China that China is starting to look a lot more aggressively at cell-based as a route to food security and providing protein for its population. Because, you know, you don't need the land of traditional meat. You don't need the antibiotics. You don't need the water. You don't need the feed. You don't need the wheat, pea protein, soy that you would use as an input into, for example, plant-based. It's much more efficient and it's closed loop or has the potential to be closed loop. So, you know, from that point of view, it's one of the few technologies available that could deliver complete food security.
0: And you are not just focusing on Selleck and plant-based with Big Idea Ventures, but I've read that you are creating your second fund called Generation Food, targeting later stage companies, for example, in Series A and beyond. What areas do you find particularly interesting?
2: Yeah, what we're seeing across the consumer side of things is that People are voting with their pounds, their dollars, their euros, based on the company's approaches to not just the products that they're putting inside the packaging, but the packaging on the outside and their approach to CO2 and so on. So if you look at the reports of most of the large food companies, uh, especially the global food companies. Most of them are making strong commitments to their investors and to their customers and consumers that they will significantly reduce their their CO2 footprint, reduce the plastics in their supply chain, waste and water usage. Pepsi, for example, pulled down a billion dollars out of the markets in what they called a green bond that they would use to re-engineer their core business to reduce plastics in the packaging, reduce water use and CO2 footprint. Mm -hmm. Nestle have made announcements publicly about packaging. I think they're dedicating something like a billion to $2 billion to reduce their packaging. And they've made some really strong commitments by 2025 and 2030 to take plastics out of the the kind of supply chain and the packaging options that they have across a lot of their core products. So from our point of view, we want to help a lot of the uh, medium sized and larger food companies to meet those commitments. I think part of the challenge though, is a lot of the folks who are involved in making these decisions about which new packaging, which new uh, technologies that they use, are, are often the people who were involved in deciding on the packaging they have today and the technologies mm. they have today. And you're almost asking them to unravel the decisions and the relationships they've made over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Now, unfortunately, there's not going to be a lot of choice about it. So from our point of view, we've got a team who are running around the world finding the best technologies in in these, you know, wastewater, plastics, CO2s, and bringing those back after investment to these these food companies and encouraging them to take a look at these technologies to help them to meet their commitments.
0: Interesting. plastic alternatives and food waste are some of the next topics on the podcast and the following seasons. Imagine you could choose companies in underserved areas in markets which are not yet saturated, Mm -hmm. In which you could invest in, but you haven't really seen much going on. If you could, like, now pick which areas would get more attention, where would you put that brain power?
2: Interesting. It wouldn't necessarily be a specific area because I'm already sort of focusing in on what I think is really important from a climate, Mm -hmm. animal welfare, personal health perspective. I think it would be about the people. Uh, that we're investing in. So, for example, I would really love to put an investment fund together uh, that's focused specifically on female founders. I would like to leverage the entrepreneurial slash investment cycle to, to encourage people who are underserved in the entrepreneurial space. If I had, I don't know, $50 million of my own money to invest, I would be trying to back as many female founders as possible, Interestingly, something like 50% of the companies we invest in across the plant based and cell based space have female founders. And that just sort wow. of works out, it, Yeah, I know that's kind of crazy, right? It, it works out that way because we're not really focused on gender. We're focusing on the best ideas. And the best ideas happen to be 50% female founders and 50% male founders.
0: We're going to have Isha on from New Harvest. She's yeah, actually she's great. Um,
2: she's, she's fabulous. Yeah,
0: she's, yes, it will be our 12th episode. And she describes uh, that there are three stages of uh, select companies. Uh, at first, there were the big visionaries. Mm-hmm. At the second tier were the B2B companies. And now the third tier is the ecosystem builders offering solutions and optimizations for existing seller companies like the one doing the plant-based serum that you described. Would you agree with that concept? Will there be a fourth tier coming up?
2: So in all fairness Isha's way smarter than I am so if that's what <laughs> if that's what she said then she's probably she's probably right you know we have companies coming up, uh, online who are crossing some of the boundaries they're not exactly CELAG and they're not exactly plant based they're sort of uh, involved in some interesting technologies around for example biofermentation so we've got a company mm-hmm. that's building the first vegan honey and so I'm not sure that you would necessarily consider it the fourth step of cell base, though. So let me just go back. We're starting to see companies going into the, the kind of a more segmented um, approach. So we're getting companies, for example, that are tackling heritage mm-hmm. meats. We're getting companies that are tackling hamon serrano, which is very specific kind of pork. We've got companies who are focusing in on very fat, rich, marbled meat closer to a kind of a wagyu style the fourth area would probably be the kind of more difficult to accomplish meat delicacies with a you know high price point that that people aspire to eat on an irregular basis just because of the price point so cell based is getting more specific and more expensive Uh, so it's not about a, a meatball, which is what Memphis Meat have spent the last five years or however long developing. It's about developing a very specific product which consumers, you know, are prepared to pay a high price for because it's the best of the best.
0: Next up is Fabio Zimson, the founder and director of NX Food, the food innovation hub of the wholesaler Metro. NX food explores new food solutions, for example, for sustainability, food waste, and alternative protein sources. Fabio is also co-founder and vice chairman of the board of BALPRO, the association for alternative protein sources. We talk about European consumers, the importance of very clear communication, and what a good sell-ag marketing and wholesaler strategy could look like. How would you describe the relationship between cellular agriculture and plant-based
3: proteins? The plant-based sectors will help us to really support this kind of new technologies and also to yeah, pave their road to the market. And I think in the cultivated product area, the expectations are really high because we are talking still about meat and if the first products have not the consistency the texture and the taste of the normal product if they are not really meeting the expectations the consumer expectations it will be very very difficult to really place them in the market and there were so many versions before we see the final impossible meat burger or the beyond meat burger which is now in place but this took really some time and this is uh, what i see in this field as one of the major barriers at the moment
0: let's talk about european consumers how do consumer buying criteria in europe differ from other countries
3: the consumers are very very critical because we have a very very good culinary landscape in in europe that's that's maybe also the reason why the ambition to accept ultra processed slash Cultivated food is is a really really high one in other countries or uh, in other continents is more accepted. If I'm talking about the cultivated meat topic, in Singapore is is really driven by geopolitical aspects, and I can imagine that in in the European companies, the high class gastronomy will be very open for this kind of topics as the first ones, because we are on the tip of the Maslow it will ha- find its market because the people always want to experience new food and new food culinary aspects, as we have seen it also in other product categories. The big question will be if it's really hitting the mark in, in the long term. And this is where I put a big question mark um, about the expectation to this new product.
0: It sometimes reminds me of what happened to Google Street View in Europe. Or especially actually in Germany, where in other countries it was not much of an issue at all, but due to the sensitivity of Germans with data privacy, there were a lot of uh, court cases which made Google stop investing in German Street View relatively soon. European consumers, or let's say especially German consumers, are also very sensitive towards GMOs, for example. Do you see that this is an issue in terms of cultivated meat maybe getting a bad reputation and then being very much disregarded by the sort of critical consumer groups?
3: I totally agree with you that the consumer have a certain bias uh, against this kind of product category uh, if we talk about the german terminology about cultivated uh, meat it's it's labor fleisch or in vitro flesh, which is uh, laboratory, uh <laughs> it's, which is horrible and not really the right naming for it whether we're talking in other countries about clean meat or cultivated meat but yeah this is why if we are really talking about the German market, I'd see, I'd see it also critical. But I must say that if you are also looking at the different generations, I see that new generations are more open for this this kind of product because it's also part of their identity to be uh, mm. open for new innovations, for new solutions, etc. And uh, it's also a thing that's driven by the generations. Still, in Germany, we have a very, very sensitive consumer behavior also when it comes to the pricing and this is something that is of course very dangerous for new innovative products the question will always be raised do i really need this kind of product if i have uh, exceptional or perfect mimics from the plant-based sector this will be a topic which will be always discussed
0: i do believe that part of the market won't be convinced by plant-based substitutes no matter how good they are unfortunately because it's still an identity topic. Eating meat is often considered manly and eating plant-based substitutes is then unmanly. So that wouldn't suffice for this kind of consumer group, probably.
3: Uh, I, I, I got this picture from a friend of mine. She told me, Fabio, if you have looked at Mad Men, the series, which show how advertising was, was running in the 60s, yeah, where the people were drinking in their office, were smoking yeah. all the time, etc. And if you <laughs> see how it's running today, back then nobody has imagined... That smoking at one point in time will totally forbidden in offices or day drinking or something like this <laughs> and and you see that there's also development if you compare this both pictures from the series Mad Men back then which is showing also the role of women and men etc cetera, etc cetera, and how you see it today and we are talking about really a time frame of 40 or 50 years then i think uh, there is a lot of things uh, able to change and this is really something yeah. that i see
0: Definitely, I agree. There can be lots of things changing within a few generations. Yeah. So the go-to-market strategy in Europe can be quite tricky or laced with pitfalls. What are common mistakes that you see with food startups that try to expand in
3: Europe? They think that they know the market and the market in Europe in general is so fragmented that yeah. you have to see it in every country in a different way. I can always say set up some kind of skimming strategy, skimming marketing strategy. All the successful food startup I've seen, they had their go-to-market via the gastronomy sector. If you talk about Impossible Food or in Beyond Meat or maybe in Just or in Oatly, etc. If you're working with chefs together, you have the the really harsh critics there you have people there that are so critics when it comes to taste to texture etc so if you validate your product with them you have in the end a very very good product that, that that is also able to perform at the market i think the most important thing is really that you create awareness an image and a brand and um, this brand will then create some certain demand by end consumers because they see that the hospitality sector is working with it. And this is also significantly for your quality exposure. The next step is definitely to be part of the retail game or to really build a very, very good distribution infrastructure.
0: What would be your tips to get into retail as a food startup that's already started to work with chefs? but now needs to go the second step.
3: I would always say choose your distribution strategy wisely here. So that means, of course, I would try to test every distribution channel. Don't uh, think that your product wouldn't make sense uh, in a discount or wouldn't make sense in in a small retail concept, etc. Try to really place it uh, everywhere because this is still part of your validation. If you once have figured out where your best consumers are and where your target group is then focus on this distribution channel but i would never uh, start with saying hey my product should be just in, in organic stores or something like this because this is really really difficult and the second thing is if we are starting to sell your products offline do you need to build up an own community in, in your own media your own? fellows and fans uh, online and if you can leverage them in your offline distribution structure this is something that's really valuable if you are starting the offline but at the moment especially for this product are really really good times because all the retailers all the distributors they see the potential in this kind of products
0: fabio if you would have 50 million in what businesses would you invest it in if it's not limited to food and you can't invest in your own ventures
3: yeah if i would have 50 million of course i would uh, drive some of the alternative protein topics that we just discussed um, which i find very very promising and if i look in general into new technologies i would also look in the sector of the new infrastructure if we are talking about the customer journey of the future and especially in the offline world the point of um, consumption and the point of um, selling, they will totally change and uh, I would look into the technologies, mainly data driven, artificial intelligence driven.
0: Is there anything you want to shout out and where can listeners
3: reach you? Listeners can reach me via www.nxfood.com. So this is our uh, website when they want to know more about future of food and food technologies food innovations and of course if they are interested in being part of our association they can also reach us via balpro.de
0: This was the next to last episode. I'm looking for both a potential co-host of the podcast but also for volunteers or ambassadors who are interested to move our food system into a green state. If you want to get involved in any way check out redtogreen.solutions slash getinvolved. redtogreen.solutions slash getinvolved. Or just send me an email. You'll find, as always, interesting links and information in the show notes, as well as all LinkedIn profiles and all websites mentioned. Let's move our food system from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from
3: red to green.